are listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. R.A. Torrey was a giant of the faith who had a worldwide ministry in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Maybe you're familiar with him, maybe you're not. If you're not, you'll learn a little bit more about him today. He was a close associate of the evangelist D.L. Moody, and he possessed uh, a rare combination, uh, the rare combination of scholar and pastor with a sharp intellect, but also a man with a shepherd's heart. And he employed his God-given abilities to great effect. He pastored three different churches over his life, most notably Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. And in the course of his ministry there, 2,000 members were added to the membership role. He served as the second president of Moody Bible Institute and later moved to Los Angeles, California to found the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which is known as Biola. And... If that wasn't enough for one man, he traveled around the world as an evangelist, leading several uh, worldwide evangelistic campaigns. It's said that he led perhaps over 100,000 people to Christ in the course of his ministry. He was a prolific writer, publishing over 40 books. And we could go on and on about this, this really, this incredible man. And whenever we, we read about people like this, my thought, my first thought is, how did he do it? What made him so special? What was his secret? And certainly, we would say that God gifted him. Uh, that level of ministry does not just happen, especially that level of true ministry. But the other secret to R.A. Torrey was that he was known as a man of the Spirit and a man of prayer. In fact, at his funeral, it was said of him that those who knew Dr. Torrey more intimately knew him as a man of regular and uninterrupted prayer. He knew what it meant to pray without ceasing. With hours set systematically apart for prayer, he gave himself diligently to this ministry. And perhaps the most popular book that R.A. Torrey wrote that's still around today is simply titled How to Pray. His opening chapter discussed the importance of prayer, and he raised this question, why is prayer so needful? Why pray at all? And he gives, I think, 10 or 11 answers. And his final answer is very simple. Because of what prayer accomplishes. He wrote this. Prayer promotes our spiritual growth as almost nothing else. Indeed, nothing else but Bible study. And true prayer and true Bible study go hand in hand. Prayer brings power into our work. And with this short statement... Ari Tori has identified the cause for a lack of spiritual power in many churches and in many Christians' lives. Many churches lack power because they don't pray, or they pray very little, or they pray superficially. Many Christians do not grow deeper because they pray very little. Very few Christians would say their prayer life is strong. If you, it's a joke among us pastors that if you want to preach something convicting, preach on evangelism or prayer, because that, that is sure to gain a response of, yes, I can do better at that. I need to do more in that area. Very few Christians would say that they're, they've arrived and in the discipline of prayer. And there are many reasons we don't feel confident about our prayer lives. We could probably have our, our own message on reasons why we don't pray well, <laughs> 
But I think most of the time, the reason we don't pray and don't pray well is, is because of three interconnected factors, a trifecta, we could say, three obstacles of time, of knowledge, and persistence. We don't spend enough time in prayer. We cannot substitute the amount of time spent in prayer. Yes, quality of prayer matters, but, but there is no substitute for spending long periods of time with the Lord in prayer. Why don't we spend enough time in prayer? Well, perhaps we're too busy. Perhaps, though, we don't know what to pray for, and so that bleeds into the knowledge category. Our lack of knowledge means we don't know how to pray according to God's will. It's, it's not that we don't want to, we just, just don't know how. And when we go to pray, and we don't know how, maybe we feel like we're saying the same thing over and over, and it's really redundant, and are my prayers even making it past the ceiling? And so that affects then our persistence, <laughs> Our persistence is short-lived. Prayer is awkward and clunky, which discourages us because we feel like it shouldn't be this hard. Time, knowledge, and persistence are obstacles to prayer. And I can certainly relate to this in my own prayer life. I am not a giant in prayer that I would prefer to be. And as I've wrestled through my own challenges with this, and sought answers from the scriptures, I've actually found great encouragement in the book of Colossians in this matter of prayer. There are several passages in Colossians that teach us about how to pray and what prayer is. Uh, at the end of the book, we're gonna get to the fact that prayer is hard work. That was a relief to me to realize that it shouldn't be easy to do this because there's spiritual warfare going on. But today's text is one of these encouraging passages because it teaches us what to pray for. So it really addresses that knowledge obstacle that, that we face. What to pray for. When I kneel to pray or sit to pray, what do I even say? Maybe you felt that recently. And so today, uh, Paul is going to show us how to pray. And, and that's why the title of this message is very simple, Praying Like Paul. I originally entitled it How to Pray, and Kate said, you've got to do something a little bit more interesting than that. I said, okay, Praying Like Paul, how about that? And as we walk through this text, my goal today is not to, to do something dramatic. I, I just want to show you how to pray. And I have a result that I'm trying to accomplish. I want you to be able to walk out of here this morning more confident and more knowledgeable about what you are to do when you get on your knees in prayer. I want you to be able to pray more confidently and knowledgeably as a result of our study. So we have four points that we're going to see here in our text. The first is very simple. Notice Paul's practice of prayer. What does he do when he comes to pray? And this is in the beginning of verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. Verse 9 begins with a couple of connections back to the previous paragraph. He writes, if you're looking at your text, for this reason. Well, what reason is that? In verses 3 through 8, we saw that, that the Colossians had received the gospel. The gospel had come to them just like it had in all the world. And it had produced something in them. It had produced the spiritual fruits of faith and love and hope. And Paul wants those things to continue. So he prays for them. And he mentions then the starting point of, our, of his prayer, since the day we heard it. From the moment that Epaphras, who was a native to Colossae, from that moment when he came to Paul and Timothy and described to them the good news that there was a church there, that there was a body of believers, that Christ had invaded that kingdom of darkness and formed a church for his name, 
from that moment, Paul ministered to them in prayer. And when Paul prays for these believers, we see three things. He consistently petitions God on their behalf. Let's break that down. He prays consistently. The main verb of this entire paragraph in verses 9 through 12 is the verb do not cease. Paul persists in prayer and does not stop praying. Paul, we would say, has made a habit of prayer. He prays regularly for them. And and I think that involves just a day-to-day routine. This is part of the way he lives. But I think this is part of Paul's mindset. Remember, this is the man who wrote in several occasions, praying without ceasing, we always give thanks to God for you. Paul constantly communed with God in prayer. Now, to help us learn to pray consistently, to learn to pray without ceasing, I would encourage you to think about prayer in two different categories. Seasons of prayer and moments of prayer. Okay, Seasons of prayer are like a phone call to a relative in another state. When Kate and I were dating and engaged, we spent the entirety of that relationship apart. We did it all long distance. Some of you were like, how did you do it? Well, we knew each other pretty well, and we were living in different states, so we made it work. But we both look forward to those times where we would get on the phone and talk and be able to communicate with one another and, and to talk about what was going on in our lives and share our dreams for the future together. Mom, uh, seasons of prayer are like this. They're extended periods of time that we can talk with the Lord and bring our requests to him and fellowship with him in prayer. But what about moments of prayer? I like to think about moments of prayer like text messages that are short bits of conversation that, that are like a running thread Sometimes, I, I, maybe you have friends like this too, but I'll have a friend where I'll text and I won't hear back for like 10 days and then he'll randomly text me back and answer a question and I'm kind of like, what is he talking about? Oh, right, 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 I asked him a question, okay? Some of it, some people you text and immediately it's like, how do they read that and text back so fast? I wish my fingers worked that quickly. But either way, it's a running conversation and we need both of these types of time with the Lord. We need extended periods of time in prayer. We need to have a running conversation with God where we bring our, our daily requests to him. This is what Nehemiah practiced in the Old Testament. If you want to study this out, go to Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, and you'll find that Nehemiah devoted himself to a period of prayer where he's, he's spending a season of time in prayer. But then at, at interesting moments, at critical moments in his life, he would shoot up short prayers to the Lord. The king puts him on the spot and asks for an answer, and the Bible says, and I prayed. <laughs> that, was, that was all it was. And it was probably something like this, Lord, help me. And then he answered the king. That's the type of prayer that we, would, that we ought to have. So I would encourage you to, to, to schedule an extended time of prayer with the Lord because praying for more than a couple minutes probably just won't happen by accident. Some of you maybe pray in the car. I hope you pray with your eyes open in the car. Uh, some of you pray while you walk or exercise. That's great. But, but I found, in spite of being able to do those things, that there is nothing that substitutes for just getting alone with God in the quietness of the morning or the evening. And if you have children in the home or if there's, there's other family living with you, that can, that can be very challenging. So you're going to have to carve out that time. And when you put prayer in your schedule, guard it because other things are going to try to crowd out that time. To help you have a running conversation with the Lord throughout the day, I I find it helpful to prompt myself. Maybe set a phone alarm that goes off every couple of hours or put a sticky note or two in a visible spot that, oh, right, yes, and then take that moment, take that pause and pray to the Lord. These prompts remind you to reopen that conversation with the Lord. 
Paul prays consistently, and he prays consistently as a petition to God. He describes the type of prayer with two words in verse 9, pray and ask. And pray is the general word for prayer in the New Testament. It's just simply making requests to God, communicating with a deity in general. Asking is a little bit more nuanced. It involves intensity. One source said it's a request with urgency even to the point of demanding to ask for, to demand, to plead for, there, there's, a, there's a zealousness to it. And there are many different types of prayer, right? We, we talked about adoration last week and thanksgiving. There's certainly confession. There's the prayers of lament. There's the prayers of, of hope and confidence in the Psalms. But this prayer that Paul refers to here falls in the category of supplication. I'm going to bring my request to God on behalf of other people. R.A. Torrey, the man I referenced at the beginning in that little book, How to Pray, wrote this, quote, prayer is God's appointed way for obtaining things. And the great secret of our lack, of all lack in our experience, in our life and in our work, is neglect of prayer. He's saying that, that the reason we lack things in our lives is because we don't pray. And that's exactly what James chapter four says, right? We lack because we ask we don't ask, and sometimes we do ask, but we ask wrongly that we may consume it on our desires. In a few minutes, we'll see what we should pray for, but let's note here that Paul prays as a petition to God. Third, we pray on behalf of others. Paul's prayer is focused on other people. The Colossians were the recipients of pr Paul's prayer ministry. And there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. I do it a lot because I need a lot of work. But there's also a ministry here of prayer that we intercede for other people. And if your prayer life is only focused on yourself, it probably needs to expand beyond your own navel. Because we have a ministry with one another to lift up one another in prayer. There are several prepositions in the Bible that are translated with the word for, but that's what it says here in verse 9. We do not cease to pray for you. This particular one communicates that an activity is being done for the benefit of someone else. So in this verse, Paul is saying that his prayer is a benefit that's being done for the sake of these believers. Are your prayers a benefit for the sake of other believers? Or are they only spent on yourself? We have several groups here at our church that meet to pray. We have home prayer groups. We have our evening service where we're praying. Pastor Jerry launched this, this group this past week, GAP, Grandparents at Prayer. And if you're not involved in a group to pray together, I would, I would encourage you to consider that because it, you can pray on your own, certainly we ought to, but there is something dynamic that comes when we gather with other believers to pray. And yet, it might be awkward at first. There might be silence. Silence, I don't think, killed anyone in a prayer meeting ever. So I would encourage you to consider, how can I sit down with others? Maybe it's not in a formal group, but you invite other people over, you spend time with them to pray together. Husbands and wives, families, praying together. Prayer unites us together. Now, Paul certainly prayed for others, and when he prayed, he had a specific aim in prayer. Verses, the, the second half of verse 9, the beginning of verse 10, gives us the aim or the intention of Paul's prayer. And in the middle of verse 9, we see that he says, and to ask that. And, and what immediately follows that explains what Paul's intention is. When he prays, he wants these things to happen. First, he wants us to know God's plan for the world through Christ. Look at verse 9 with me. 
and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's what this phrase refers to. Let's break it down word by word. The key word of this, in this phrase is the word filled. What comes to mind when you hear the word filled? I think of a, of a beverage, like a, a full cup of water or a cup of coffee. Maybe you think of a tank of gas. I'm sure you have something that comes to mind, right? Filled. To be filled with something means that, that you're, you're holding that thing in you. But it also, in the scriptures, can mean that we are characterized by something. Ephesians 5.18 says that we are not to be drunk with wine, we're not to be filled with wine, but we are instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We are to be characterized not by the influence of alcohol, but by the influence of the Spirit. We are to be characterized by Spirit-controlled living. So what is Paul praying that we are to be filled with here? We are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, the knowledge of God's will. This is a, a tricky phrase to interpret because you could take it, I think, four or five different directions. There are passages in Scripture that specifically say this is the will of God. You can go to the book of Proverbs and see that, that the knowledge of God's will comes through the fear of the Lord and seeking wisdom. But I think what Paul is referring to here is, is found in the context of Colossians. Notice what Paul says in the verses right after this. In verses 12 through 14, he talks about giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because he sent Jesus to rescue us. He's qualified us to be, inherit- to be saints and given us an inheritance. He's delivered us. We have redemption through Christ's blood. We are forgiven. In verses 15 through 20, Paul articulates these lofty truths about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Paul goes on later in the letter to talk about Jesus' preeminence. He will call Jesus the source of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the head of the body. He is, Colossians 3, 4 says, your very life. The church was wrestling with a false philosophy that was trying to teach them that fullness and true spirituality was found apart from Jesus. So what, what does it seem that the knowledge of God's will is? It seems that Paul is praying that the Colossians would understand the significance of Christ, specifically the significance in the role of Christ as the center of human history. The knowledge of God's will is revealed in the person of Jesus. So to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to grasp the significance of what Christ has done, to see that he is deity, that he is the son of God, to see that he is our human brother, to see that he has died on the cross and redeemed us, to see that he has risen again and has received the universe as his kingdom. God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Well, let me ask you a question. Can anyone understand these truths about Jesus? Yes, let me rephrase it. Does God have to open the eyes of unbelievers to believe these truths about Christ, to recognize his true status? Absolutely yes. And that's what the phrase, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, points to. Because the unsaved mind, the natural man, cannot understand, can't discern what God is doing through Christ. That's why when you go to witness and you talk to someone about Jesus and they say, yeah, whatever, they, they don't see it. 
They don't see the glorious treasure that he is because their hearts are blind. They've not, they've not had their eyes opened spiritually. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The things about Christ, in other words, are spiritual truths. But we as believers are spiritually enlightened. God has shown the light of the glory of Christ in our hearts, 2 Corinthians 4. We see the glory of Christ. The phrase, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, is a little ambiguous. It can either mean that the wisdom and the understanding that the Holy Spirit gives is given to us, or it could mean that believers have received spiritual wisdom and understanding, that the realm of the wisdom that we have is spiritual. And, and I think, as I described it there, you recognize that both are true. At salvation, the Spirit opens our eyes. Believers now can understand spiritual truths because they see with spiritual eyes. We have wisdom that is spiritual in nature, not simply earthly wisdom. We have wisdom that is from above, James 3 says, not wisdom that is from below, from the earth. This also helps us to understand that we should not overlook the Spirit's role in all of this. The Holy Spirit illumines our hearts and enables our prayers. He is the one who reveals truth about Christ and intercedes for us with groanings that can't be uttered. And when he opens our eyes to the truth, we finally grasp what God is doing in the world through Christ. So what Paul is praying for is is not just that they would understand a a snippet about Jesus here or there. He is praying that God would, would show us and give us a mind to understand all of the riches that we have through Christ. And that we wouldn't just grasp it, that we would be filled with it. That we would say, this is such a part of me that it would lead to a transformed life. That's the second thing he prays for. The second aim is that our knowledge would lead to a transformed life. In the beginning of verse 10, he says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Now that word walk is a metaphor for a person's way of life. It means to conduct oneself. And This is a common way of of thinking about our lifestyle. He uses this expression over and over again in the scriptures. Well, how are Christians who are filled with the knowledge of God's will supposed to conduct themselves? How are we supposed to live? And the answer is we are to live in a worthy manner. We are to live worthy of the Lord himself. The military has an offense entitled conduct unbecoming. I think the full title is conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. In other words, it means that when an officer has conduct that is morally unfitting and unworthy, he is disqualified from his office. When an officer behaves in such a way to invite disgrace or dishonor on his country or his, or his unit, he is guilty of conduct unbecoming his office. We are to live as Christians in such a way that our behavior measures up to God's standard. We are to live in a way that no one could point to us and say, well, that's not a real Christian because they they don't live like the Lord who saved them. Now, if you're thinking, (laughs) you're probably going, that's a high bar, isn't it? To live worthy of the glory of God. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Well, we're gonna get to that in a moment. But that, that is really our aim. 1 Peter 2, 9 through, 9 through 10 says that we've been brought from darkness to light to proclaim the praises of him 
that's called us to glory and virtue. Our lives should reflect the glory of God. And when we walk worthy, there's a beautiful result. We live a life that pleases God. In a moment, we're gonna get to the requests that Paul prays for. These requests are what a life that walks worthy will look like, okay? So he says that we would walk worthy of the Lord, verse 10, fully pleasing him. And this is our transformed lives. Paul wants us to have a transformed life that honors the Lord with everything we do. And this is, this is a result, meaning when we walk worthy, we will be pleasing to God. We don't have to try to be pleasing to God. You don't have to get on your knees and say, God, I hope I please you today. Because when we are found in Christ, God brings us into the family. We are accepted in the beloved. By the way we live then, we will see that, that we can honor the Lord. When we come to faith in Christ, God transforms us from being a people who seek to please ourselves to people who try to please God. And the result of praying like Paul is the assurance that we'll please God. Some of you probably struggle with the fear of man or wondering if God is still for you. Those are very common thoughts. Does God love me? Does God care for me? Does, does God put up with me even though I sin all the time? And what, what this verse is doing is cutting out that thinking entirely. Because if you choose to, to walk with the Lord and say, God, help me and fill me with the knowledge of your will, you will please the Lord. You can have confidence in that. As you are filled with the knowledge of God's will and as you seek to live worthy of the Lord, God transforms us into people who please him. And so we can rest. We don't have to fret. We don't have to worry that God's, God's not going to love me. He's not going to care for me. No, God settled all that. And now as you walk with him and grow to become closer to him, your life will reflect him and that will bring him glory. This is Paul's aim in prayer that we would be filled with the truth of Christ, which then transforms the way we live and then results in us pleasing God. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul elaborates on what it looks like to please God. He gives three requests of prayer, the first of which is that he prays for spiritual fruitfulness. Verse 10, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Last week we noted in verse six that the gospel bore fruit and increased among the Colossians. And this is probably an allusion back to Genesis where God gave a mandate to humans to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what God is doing now in the New Testament era is using the gospel to provide human flourishing in the church. Well, there's a reason the New Testament describes our good works as fruit. Fruit, as you know, grows out of healthy soil, right? Spiritual fruit grows out of a changed heart. Fruit blossoms well after the tree is planted. Good works then are the evidence of a healthy Christian, not the way someone becomes a Christian. Fruit is attractive. It tastes good usually, unless you have a bad tree. But good works in the Christian's life are meant to beautify the life and to give praise to God. So just like a tree produces much fruit on its branches, God's design for us, according to this verse, is that we would produce every kind of good work, every kind, abundant fruit. It's no wonder that Galatians 5.22 calls this long list of virtues the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the spiritual fruits that we can bear. And in John 15, we see that we glorify our Father when we bear much fruit. He says, in this I'm glorified that you bear much fruit. So as we go to pray for one another, this is one area that we can pray for. We can pray for spiritual fruit to abound in other people's lives. I mean, how many of us need less patience in our lives? Anyone want that? (laughs) How about less endurance or less joy or less peace? These are the requests that Paul mentions. You can never pray wrongly when you pray for another believer to develop spiritual fruit. The second request he prays for is for an increasing knowledge of God. This is really a missional prayer for us, right? Our mission is to know Christ and make him known so we can pray that we know Christ more and more. If we are going to understand the fullness of God's plan in Christ, then we need to know him. Why do you think the Bible commands us to grow in our knowledge of him over and over and over again? Second Peter, I think it is, has seven different references to the knowledge of God in three chapters. Why is knowledge such an important part of our spiritual walk? And the answer is very simple. It's going to be hard to walk with the Lord Jesus if you don't know him. It's going to be hard to love someone that you don't really know. To treasure Christ, we have to know Jesus intimately. Several weeks ago when we worked through our theme passage for the year, I talked about knowing Jesus intimately is the third step to treasuring Christ. If Christ is our treasure, then we will seek every day to develop our relationship with him. And the beautiful thing is this, he is an inexhaustible, is that a word? Inexhaustible well of water that we will never get to the bottom of. The more deeply we drink, the more thirsty for him we become, and at the same time, the more satisfied we are. It's like the reverse of salt water, where we get thirstier and that actually harms us. The more we drink of Christ, the more satisfied we are, and yet the more capacity we have to drink deeply. To increase our knowledge of God, we have to be exposed to the scriptures. A Christian who doesn't spend time in the word of God is going to be a pygmy Christian. It's just going to be hard to grow. That's why we preach the Bible in our services. No, we don't have the flashiest presentation. Uh, I've seen churches that the pastor comes in on a zip line. <laughs> be kind of cool. We're not going to do that. We don't have fireworks up here. We're, we're just taking the word of God which is the word of grace, and we're just trying to feed you with it. That's why our Sunday school hour and our evening service, we we study the word of God. We preach and teach the word of God. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible on your own so you will will become a self-feeding Christian. We don't want spiritual infants to remain spiritual infants. Spiritual infants are wonderful. That means they've just gotten saved. But just like a human baby naturally grows, Christians should grow. And how do they grow? Through the milk of the word of God. There are four areas. When you go to study your Bible, I would encourage you to direct your study into four areas. There's Bible content or Bible knowledge to understand what the Bible says, to understand what different books of the Bible teach, to understand the big story of Scripture and how God is redeeming the world for his glory. The second area is Bible doctrine, the truths about uh, Scripture, the truths about our God that that form the body of our beliefs. That's kind of like the, the structure that we build our hearts and our lives and our churches on. What about Christian living? Third, this is how we are to live as redeemed people. In fact, in Colossians, we'll get in chapter three to a big chapter on Christian living. This is how we are to live worthy. 
to seek things above, to lay off the old man, to put on the new man, to practice love and grace and virtues like this. The fourth area to direct your study is Christian worldview. How do we interpret life through the Bible? How how do we interact with our culture? How do we apply what we're learning to everyday decisions? I've talked to several people just in the last week about sticky issues from our culture. How do I respond to this issue or that issue? Well, our Bibles aren't just for Sundays where we then set it aside and say, well, I'm on my own. The Bible teaches us how to think and how to view the world around us. And you could take any of these areas that I've just mentioned and pray that we develop in these things. This would be a wonderful thing for you to pray for yourself. Be a wonderful thing for you to pray for other people. Pray for one another to treasure Christ and pray that their desire for him will grow. Pray that they have an increased capacity to understand the will of God. Pray that they have an eagerness to study the Bible. Pray that we who teach and, and preach the word of God would have clarity as we teach and, and, and time and, and, and just a, a spirit of grace as we get into the word and study it throughout the week. Pray for growth in Bible content and doctrine. Pray that we understand what the scriptures teach. Pray that we respond to it. Pray that we are, are learning how to live and how to see the world. You see, I could keep going. <laughs> when we start to pray like Paul, we, we are praying really for the true growth of the church, for the true growth of other people. Because yes, we, we certainly have needs and we should pray for physical needs. We should pray for, for the health needs that are in our midst or the wisdom for finances or things like that. But ultimately, if we're restricting our prayer to just what we can see, we will never make progress on what's really important. So I would encourage you to do both. Pray for those requests. Pray for your hurting friend. Pray for the friend in the hospital. But pray instead of just for healing for their physical body, pray that they would bear fruit and have patience through that incident. Pray that they would understand more and more what suffering through the lens of Scripture looks like. Pray that they would have an opportunity to share the word with others. There's a third thing that Paul prays for. He prays for spiritual strength. Verse 11 says this, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Here's a, a wonderful truth. God always grants us the power to accomplish his commands. God always gives us the power to do what he calls us to do. He never says, you need to be content, but you're on your own. You need to trust me, but you're on your own. He always gives us the strength So whatever situation you're facing today, whatever loss, whatever hardship, whatever challenge that you have in your mind, God promises to give you the strength to walk through it. Notice what this strength is. He says he strengthens us with all might. That that don't think of God's power as like this this meter that, you know, at the beginning of the day it's full and each day, each day, Each time you ask him for a little bit more through the day, it kind of like diminishes a little bit. And then when you read your Bible, it creeps up a little bit more. You get a little more power there. And and by the end of the day, hopefully you still have enough to get through the night. No, that's not it. It's all power. It's abundant power. It's overflowing power. God never lacks in giving you strength. This is his glorious power that is at work in you. Well, what's his glorious power? Well, his glorious power created the world and the galaxies with just a word. 
His glorious power took the Son of God and raised him from the dead. His glorious power defeated all the enemies of sin and death and darkness and crushed them once for all at the cross. That's the power that's at work in our lives. He infuses us with strength. Well, why does he do that? So we can be modern day Samsons? You know, go rip gates off of, you know, communities and uh, walk down the street with them, put it in a different spot? He infuses us with strength because of the end of verse 11. For all patience and long-suffering with joy. Patience is really the Greek word endurance. And it's the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. Long-suffering is the state of, of being able to bear up when provoked. To remain calm in hardship. So you put these two qualities together, endurance and long-suffering or patience and long-suffering. And really, we could say that this is the steel that fills a believer's backbone to stand firm in suffering and in hardship. To stand firm through trials. And in our suffering and in our hardships, which come fast and furious in this broken world, we need God's strength to endure the struggle. You will not make it on your own. You're like, yeah, I could have told you that. But God promises his strength. And, and yet there's one more little phrase that, that maybe some of us don't want to talk about. But that little phrase, with joy. Oh. That's just as hard as enduring sometimes, isn't it? Because Paul teaches us that we are to suffer hardships not by gritting our teeth and by being angry about it and complaining our way through it, but by saying, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to have joy even in the midst of this hardship. That's really difficult. How is it possible to do that? <laughs> it's only through, yes, I'm a broken record, only through the strength that God supplies. We can support one another in this way through a trial when we pray for strength. How many of us face trials on a weekly basis? If I were to ask you to raise your hand, I think like 99.9% .9 of the room would raise their hands. And the one person that didn't would be sleeping. <laughs> We'd find out who they are. We all have trials. Many of us were at a funeral on Friday. Les Pendleton passed. Cheryl's going through a trial. How can you pray for her? Pray for spiritual strength. Pray that she endures. Pray that she has patience and remains calm in the face of her hardship and grief. We've had other people lose loved ones recently. You can pray for strength for them. We have people that are, are being pressured by their work situation. Some that are in woke places. We can pray for spiritual strength to remain faithful to Christ, to not give in to the pressure of the world, to have wisdom to know how to respond. That's how we support one another. Let me suggest this. How you would want other people to pray for you, try praying that for other people. If you want more strength and more wisdom and more endurance, pray that for other people, and you'll never go wrong that way. We pray for these three things, for spiritual fruitfulness, for an increasing knowledge of God, and for spiritual strength. And finally, Paul shows us the flavor of his prayers at the beginning of verse 12. The flavor of prayer is thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Father. And if you have your Bible open, if you glance back to verse 3, the beginning of verse 3 mentions we give thanks. So there's, there's kind of this, this circling back to this quality of thanksgiving. And Paul is signaling his intention to shift topics in the verse ahead. It's, a, it's kind of verbal brackets here. However, this reference to thanksgiving concludes the prayer section in a powerful way. Let me illustrate it this way. You may be familiar with the flavor enhancer known as MSG. 
monosodium glutamate. Some of you are like, get away from me now. Uh, there's a debate, actually, about how healthy it is. In fact, I Googled it last night. Is MSG safe? And there's like the Mayo Clinic saying it's probably safe, but we don't know. Uh, there may be a debate about how healthy it is, but there is no debate about how good it tastes. It tastes really good. Too good, if we're really thinking carefully. It tastes too good. When Kate and I worked at the Wilds in the summers, we had an older friend who carried an MSG shaker to the meals and would sprinkle it on literally everything he ate. And he had a cutout of an article that said, you know, it's fine for you. So that when someone said, what are you doing? He said, read it, it's fine. MSG flavored all of his food. And through all of Paul's prayers, the overarching flavor that he sprinkles liberally through everything is thankfulness. Thankfulness is given to the Father, like we talked about last week. And Paul goes on to give several reasons for this thankfulness. And we're going to go into those in detail next week. The Father has qualified us. He has delivered us. He's redeemed us through Christ. He's forgiven our sins. Why else would Paul give thanks to the Father? Not only because of what he's done, but because the Father is able to answer these requests. We give thanks to the Father because giving thanks is an expression of our faith in him. That when we're praying for these requests to be met, and then we say, Lord, thank you for answering, that shows our faith that God will provide, that God will answer. He is the one that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So let's take a moment to put this all together. To pray like Paul, you need to develop a consistency in prayer as you ask God to grow other Christians. Your aim in prayer is that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will, that they would understand how to walk worthy of the Lord, and that as a result, they would have peace that they're pleasing God in every part of their life. So specifically then, you would pray for spiritual fruit to blossom, that the fruit of the Spirit would be present and, and, and abundant in their life, that they would have an ever-increasing knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that their depth with him would grow and increase and abound, and that they would have spiritual strength to patiently endure all things with joy. And as you pray, you would give thanks to the Father who's able to bring all this about. And when you pray like this, you don't have to pray this entire passage, I use this passage from time to time. You don't have to pray the whole passage for every single person. Trust me, that gets long, okay? So maybe you just select one or two of these phrases. Pray those truths for everyone on your list today. Pray those truths for others this week. And when you pray like this, there, there's actually an unintended consequence. You actually start to become more aware of how God is at work. If you are praying daily for God to, to grow us in our knowledge of him, and someone says, yeah, I learned this about Jesus, you make the connection in your mind. Oh, hey, God answered my prayer. Or when you're praying for yourself, even, to the Lord to, to grow my patience, and God sends children your way, and you're like, Lord, not patience in that way, some other way. Uh, you can recognize that God's at work, which should prompt you then to thank God for answers to prayer. I introduced R.A. Torrey to you earlier. Uh, though he had a large and impactful ministry, he initially resisted the call to preach. From an early age, his mother prayed that her son would become a minister of the gospel, and he fought against that. 
He even went to college fighting that. And yet he had this sinking feeling deep inside his heart that he was going to be called to preach. But he didn't want it. He ran from it. When he attended Yale, that's where he went to college, he, atten- he lived a double life. He attended church and read his Bible pretty consistently to maintain appearances, but then at the same time, he went out partying and drinking. And toward the end of his sophomore year, two years of this type of lifestyle finally brought him to a crisis point. And he was so under conviction that he began to think about suicide. And as he began to make plans, the Lord, he just says in his own words, the Lord arrested my heart. He told God that if God would lift the burden in his heart, he would preach. And he says, immediately I felt the peace of God. I slept that night like I've never slept before. And so I surrendered. And someone asked him, what led to this dramatic turn of events? And Tori would later respond, my mother, 427 miles away, was praying and praying that I would become a minister of the gospel. And though I had gotten over sermons and arguments and churches and everything else, I could not get over my mother's prayers. God answers prayer. Every feeble saint turns into a mighty warrior in prayer. And so as we follow Paul's example, as we pray like Paul, we can pray confidently and knowledgeably as we go this week. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, minister to us, Lord. Uh, Your word is is such a, a blessing and guides us in every step of the way. It's fitting for all instruction and righteousness. And you've told us to pray, you've commanded us to pray, and then you've also shown us what it means to pray. You've instructed us on how to do it. May we apply this now, Father. May we not walk away thinking uh, that we can just pray the way that we have been, but may we apply these things and experience a fullness in prayer, a depth in prayer that we've not experienced before. May our church be known as a church that prays, that we would have a culture of prayer, a spirit of prayer as we, as we rely on the Spirit of God. Minister, we pray to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.